a widget that one of our customers has bought. So even though the customer owns this widget, um, they don't know the best way to use this widget. They don't know how to exploit all of its features, everything that this widget can do. So we've had meetings, we've talked to the customer, um, we've had in-face conversation, we've had teleconferences, we've talked about this widget. They generally know what they want this widget to do, but they don't know how to make it do that. And so I'm writing this user manual, which tells them how to do that. Now, based on experience, I know that even after I deliver this user manual, a couple of the engineers might dig into it and read it thoroughly, but most of them, they're just going to glance at the table of the contents. They might skim it briefly, and I'm still going to have questions about how do you use this widget? How do you make it do what we, how we want it to function, what you promised it would do in these meetings? And I will talk them through, and it's like, turn to chapter six, refer to section seven, and it tells you right there in the user manual, which I'm writing, how to do this. So I bring this up because in a similar fashion, the designer of this universe has given each of us physical life. This designer, this creator is God. And Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in Genesis 2, 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. So as humans, our life came from God. He gave it to us. So in a sense, it's ours. But just like our cust my customers who don't know how to use the widget that I've designed, we have to read the user manual to figure out how to live this life. Sure, we know the basics. We know to sleep, to eat, go to, or go to work, uh, security, provide safety, etc. But the animals know that by instinct as well. So that's nothing special. So if we want to get the most out of this life, if we want to live the best life possible that God has given us, we have to read the user manual. This morning, I want to look at a passage in God's user manual. I'm obviously referring to the Bible. And I want to examine truths in that passage and draw conclusions based on those truths. To give an example, this is the first Sunday in 2024. So based on that statement, which is self-evident, we know that's a self-evident truth, that this is the first Sunday in 2024, I can conclude based on that, sun, on that statement that last Sunday was the last Sunday of 2023. And since I know that this is the first Sunday and last Sunday was the last Sunday, in between these two Sundays, we had an event called New Year. So Happy New Year, everyone. But when we study scripture, we want to do the same thing. We want to look at the truths presented in the passage, and we want to draw conclusions and application based on those truths. But we have to start with the truth. So as the speaker, my job, my responsibility is to present the truth of Scripture. As the audience, as the congregation listening, you have a responsibility as well. You have to confirm whether the truths that I'm presenting align with Scripture. 
In Acts 17.11, during one of Paul's missionary journeys, it says these, talking about the Bereans, were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So you can't take my word for it. You have to search the scriptures and see if what I'm preaching aligns with the scripture. Is the truth that I'm presenting consistent with the truth that we find in scripture? The Bible must always be our standard and we must evaluate it, use it to evaluate which truths are presented. We're presented with so many things in this busy world that we live in. We always have to come back to the Bible as our standard of truth. With my introduction out of the way, let's transition to my message. Transitions and changes provide opportunity to reflect on our lives. Often people will use these external factors to motivate internal change and transition. The new year is a change which is so consistent we set our calendars by it. It's often used by incentive for personal change after examining the ups and the downs of the previous year. In the U.S., in our culture, an accepted tradition is to set New Year's resolutions for this coming year. The New Year is a fresh start. It gives us an opportunity to evaluate and look back, reflect. Where did we come? What did we do? What went good? What went well? And then using the New Year as another start, where do we want to go this year? What do I want to do better? What don't I want to repeat? What do I want to repeat? How do I want to change? For example, maybe I want to spend more time reading my Bible. So I make a New Year's resolution that starting in 2024, I'm going to spend two hours every morning reading my Bible before I start my day. This will be a change in my behavior, started at a particular point, given significance by another transition, the new year. So just simply, this is a resolution. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about New Year's resolutions. In the U.S., people set a range of resolutions. According to one article that I read, the most popular resolution for this coming year, for 2024, is get into better shape. 48% of people who responded to this poll said they wanted to spend more time into the gym or get into better shape. Following close behind that, 38% want to improve their finances. 36% want to improve their mental health. I'm not sure what that means. 34% wanted to lose weight. 32% wanted to improve their diet. Other things that were also common in this poll was make more time for loved ones, quit smoking, more time for hobbies, improve work-life balance, or meditate regularly. So the math wizards in the audience will immediately realize that the, present, the numbers that I presented add up to more than 100%. So that's because of the people that responded to this poll, more than uh, 40%, 45% of them said that they wanted to do three of these resolutions, or they had at least three resolutions that they wanted to try and change in their lives. And the most likely people to set a resolution in the new year were people in the age group of 19 to 34, parents, or those who had set a resolution last year. So those who had already started a habit of making a resolution. 
So you look at those resolutions and what people are focused on. Wow, there's a whole sermon series just on priorities in people's lives in America. So am I preaching to the right crowd? By a show of hands, hear who set a resolution or intends to set a resolution for 2024. We have a couple on it. Oh, there we go. There we go. So maybe 50%, just my rough poll. Today is the 7th of January. So we're seven days into the new year. How many people have already broken your resolution that you set seven days ago? Don't raise your hands. So data shows that in the U.S., 80% of people who set a resolution by February will have broken their resolution. Either stop doing it completely or not consistently. And that of those who set resolutions, only 1%, one out of 100, make it the entirety of the year. According to that same study, one-third of people don't even bother to make resolutions because what's the point? The statistical... Uh, the the statistical likelihood that they will create any significant change in their life is very, very low. As believers, how do we take advantage of new beginnings to make positive changes in our lives? Our lives are perfect already, right? There's nothing that we need to change. We don't need to make it. There's nothing that we could do to make our lives better live our lives better, live our lives according to the author and the designer, what he intended. The Bible is filled with examples of new beginnings where people left something old behind and look forward to something new. So this morning I want to tell you a story from the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, but I believe there's still application in our lives today. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ezra with me. If you don't have your Bibles, well, maybe that's a New Year's resolution you could consider. During the times of the kings, the Israelites continued to disobey God and sin. God allowed them to be taken into captivity. First, the northern kingdom in 722 BC by the Assyrian Empire. And then a few years later, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians in 605 BC. After 70 years of captivity, captivity as prophesied by Jeremiah, King Cyrus allowed and even encouraged Jews to return to Jerusalem in 536 BC. During their time in Babylon, there was no sacrifice, there was no temple. The Israelites were at a spiritual low nationally as far as their obedience to God and showing their um, belief, their faith in God. So as a side note, I'm going to draw some comparisons between the Old Testament and the New Testament for the purpose of application. But I have to note that the method of salvation has remained constant throughout both of the throughout all periods of history. In the New Testament, salvation is through faith by God's grace, according to Ephesians 2, 
Christ is the object of our faith. The good news is defined as the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. And we are saved by believing, having faith in that good news according to Romans 10. In the Old Testament, salvation is also by faith. There's no difference. According to Genesis 15, and he... He, Abraham, believed God, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. In Habakkuk 2, behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. So the Old, De- Old Testament believers demonstrated their faith in God by obeying him, by keeping his commandments. In the New Testament, we also demonstrate our faith by living in obedience to his word. In neither case do the actions, does the obedience bring salvation but it's merely an outward sign of an inward reality. And that's according to James chapter 2. The point I'm trying to make is I'm going to draw some comparisons between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And don't read into it more than that, please. And I'm an engineer. I'm not a preacher. So maybe I've poorly worded some of these. Please uh, show me some grace here as I draw these comparisons. Ezra chapter 3. We're going to read the entire chapter. We already looked at Ezra chapter 1 earlier where King Cyrus made his proclamation. And in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, And when the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of God to Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the feasted tabernacles, as it is written, offered and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offerings and those for new moons and for all appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permissions which they had from king from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from twenty years older and above to oversee work on the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, Camiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, 
wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So as we consider the new year, I want to consider four points from this passage. And the first point is that we can always start afresh with God. New beginnings are always possible with God. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter where we're at in our lives. It doesn't matter what sin we've committed. God is always willing and able, ready to forgive us and to start over. In Ezra 1, we read that God used a new ruler, it's a different new beginning, to fulfill his prophecy by Jeremiah that God would restore Israel um, and return his people to the land. Spiritually, the nation of Israel was at an all-time low. But God. Think about that for a minute. Just consider those two words. There's a whole sermon in those two words. When mankind has done all that they possibly can do, but God. God moved in the heart of a heathen king to fulfill his prophecy, to fulfill what he wanted to do. 50,000 Israelites responded to God's call to return to Judah. Think for a moment what it would mean for these 50,000 people living in Babylon um, in a familiar, if not a comfortable, lifestyle to make a perilous journey across a dangerous, dangerous desert to return to a land destroyed by war. They're not returning to the homes that they had left, but to a desolate wasteland. We find that in Jeremiah 25. But God still promised a new beginning. This morning, we looked at David and his failure with Bathsheba. Um, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And when David was confronted by Nathan, what did he say? David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your son, sin, you shall not die. David sinned, he started over with God. Didn't matter what David had done, he confessed, God was ready to forgive him and move on. Think about Jonah. Jonah was told to go and preach to Nineveh. Nineveh said, no, not me, Lord, I'm going the opposite direction. Well, you know how that story ended. Jonah got thrown over the over the um, side of the ship, got swallowed by a whale. And then in Jonah 3, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Preach to it the message that I tell you. So this time, Jonah obeyed. He arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Peter, he had a new beginning as well after his denial of Christ. In John 21, he, Jesus, said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So David's previous sin, Jonah's refusal to obey, Peter's denial of Christ, that was in the past. They recognized their sin. They moved forward. God was willing and able to start afresh and new with them, to forgive them. Matthew 11, 
We read, Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and lean. learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ is longing to start a new beginning with each of us, regardless of what we have done, how we have fallen, how we have sinned. God is always ready, willing, able to forgive and to start fresh. My second point is that Christ must be um, in our beginnings, in our new beginnings, if they're to succeed. Our new beginnings with God is all, are always possible, but they need to start with Christ. Christ needs to be at the foundation. In Ezra 3.2, the first things that the priests did when they returned to Jerusalem was build the altar. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, son of the Sheltiel, and his brethren arose, and they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So why the altar? Why did they start with this structure, which is uh, 15 feet tall and 30 feet by 30 feet square? Why did the priest start with the altar? What was the purpose of the altar? The altar was there for sacrifices where blood was shed. So to make my comparison to the New Testament, the altar represents the cross and Christ. So we can't start fresh with God apart from Christ, apart from what Christ did on the cross, apart from his completed work. In the perspectives of the priests in Ezra 3, Christ's single perfect sacrifice was still to come. We read that in Hebrews 9. But by starting with the altar, the priests were recognizing their need for um, a covering for their sin, their need to make it possible to come into the, their presence, the presence of a holy God. They didn't know it, but they were recognizing their need for a Savior. This is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. After the flood, Noah left the ark and he started a new life by building an altar and sacrificing to God in Genesis 8. In Genesis 28, Jacob started a new beginning, a new covenant with God after he had the dream of the staircase and he turned his pillar into an altar and he um, consecrated it with oil. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer realized his need for a new beginning when God opened the prison doors and freed the prisoners and nobody escaped. And he asked Paul what he had to do. And Paul and Silas responded in Acts 16, verse 30. And he, the jailer, brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Paul and Silas, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. New beginnings with God are always possible. New beginnings must start with Christ. The most important new beginning in the Bible is described in John chapter 3. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus asking questions. And if you read through John chapter 3, you realize that Jesus never really answered Nicodemus's questions. At least not directly. 
But what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? He told him, you must be born again. You have to start afresh with Christ. Before Nicodemus could understand the answers to his questions, he had to start a new life with Christ. If you have not yet made a new start with Christ, if you haven't trusted Christ for eternal life, I or one of the elders would love to speak to you in more detail after the service and share what the wonderful gift of eternal life that Christ has made available to us. All successful new beginnings must start in Christ. My third point is that new beginnings must be obedient to God's word. New beginnings follow Christ in obedience. Look again at Ezra chapter 3. The priests recognized their need to start with the altar. That was the first structure that they built. But how did they know that they needed to build an an altar and to sacrifice? Do you think they all gathered together at a town meeting, all 50,000 of the refugees who returned from Babylon, and they said, well, we're now back in the land of Judah. What should we do? How should we live? How would their lives be different now that they're in Judah rather than Babylon? If they weren't going to make any change, if there was not going to be any difference in their lives, then why leave Babylon and cross a hostile desert and come to a a land destroyed by war if they were just going to live exactly the same way that they lived in Babylon? But how did they know what to do? In Ezra 3, 2, the second half of the verse, B, and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They read the instruction manual. The instruction manual told them what to do, and they obeyed. So how often in our life do we not do what we already know that we should do? How often do we not obey? There was no mystery to these refugees as to what they should do. They knew. They had the Old Testament law. They saw what it said. Oh, we need to build an altar. We need to start sacrificing again. They did that. They obeyed. But for us, it's the same thing. How often do we go around wondering, what should I do next? How should I live? We know the answer. If nothing else, we've run the we've read the the table of contents, we've skimmed through it. We know what we should do and we choose not to obey. Over the years, how many sermons, how many books, seminars, classes have been taught on knowing the will of God in our lives? In fact, Pastor Tom just preached a um, series of sermons on knowing the will of God. If I could be so bold as to summarize two months of sermons in one sentence, read the instruction manual. It's not rocket science, guys. See, more often than not, the problem isn't ignorance. It's a problem of obedience. Just like the priests, we know what we should be doing. We know the right way to live. 
especially for those that have been here. Pastor Tom's been preaching the truth from this pulpit for how many years now, Pastor Tom? Many years. We know the right answer. We know what to do. It's a problem of obedience. So as we consider our habits and our traditions in this new year, are they in obedience to the word of God? Remember the list of the most popular New Year resolutions? Meditation? Really? Empty your mind of everything so it can be filled with nothing? I hope no one here is doing that. Fitness and healthy living? There's nothing wrong with living well, healthy lifestyle. But where is it on your list of priorities? Paul said it best to Timothy in 1 Timothy. Bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that is now, now is, and of that which is to come. So there's nothing wrong with eating well and going to the gym, staying in shape, but where does it fit in your priorities? Things that you know you should be doing. Where is your list of priorities? Where is your obedience? Being old or being new doesn't necessarily make something right or wrong. The Jews were back in Israel. So were they going to continue the way that they had been living in Babylon? Or were they going to resume their old habits before they are carried away into captivity? Or were they going to start anew, fresh, in obedience to what God had told them? But I realize that doing the right thing isn't always easy. Just like it wasn't easy for these refugees. In Ezra 3.3, though fear had come upon them because of those countries, they set the altar on its base. So even though they were fearful for their lives, they still obeyed. They still did what God had told them to do. The Jews were terrified. Based on Nehemiah's account, while trying to build the wall a few short, la- few short years later, the Israelites were afraid that the locals were going to come and wipe them out and to kill them. But that didn't stop them from what was from doing what they knew was right. That didn't stop them from being obedient. So my question to you this morning is, do you have the strength and the fortitude to do what you know is right? To do what you've read in God's instruction manual? If we don't know, if we are ignorant, are you going to spend the time, the effort necessary to read the instruction manual, to study the instruction manual, to listen to someone preach, teach out of God's instruction manual so that ignorance won't be a fault? My fourth and final point is that new beginnings must focus on Christ and his church and not ourselves. God in his kingdom must be the center of our new beginnings. To use my example of a previous New Year's resolution to read my Bible two hours every morning. There's nothing wrong with that. That would actually be in conformance with God's word. It centers on Christ, John 1.1. 1, 1. It's in obedience to scripture. So where could a possible problem be? 
And so I submit to you that if I'm reading God's word two hours in the morning, so I can say to Josh, yeah, Josh, I'm feeling great. I got up. I spent two hours reading God's Bible this morning. Let me just pat myself on the back. I did a really good job. I submit to you my motivation is wrong. And even though I'm doing something right, the wrong reason to do something right is still wrong. So where is my motivation? Where is your motivation for what you're going to do? Is it to enlarge, to increase your own kingdom, your own personal likes, to make yourself feel better? Or is it to increase God's kingdom, to build someone else up, to help someone else in need? Don't laugh at my examples, please. I'm an engineer, not a preacher. So my examples have to be obvious. But keep in mind, we're fighting an enemy who's much more subtle and much more deceptive than I could be. We're facing an enemy who is actively seeking to devour us, to destroy us. In Ezra, the priest built the altar and sacrificed on it. But what do we read in verse 6? From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Although the foundation of the temple of God had not been laid. So the offerings and the sacrifices were good. Starting your new beginnings on Christ. Christ is the foundation. That's good. That's essential. That's required. But there was still something else missing in this passage in Ezra. In this passage, there's eight references to the temple. What is the temple? Why is it referenced in this passage? What's its significance? The temple represented God's physical dwelling place in Israel. It's where the presence of God um, was, dwelt. It's a whole theological discussion. But that's where the Israelites would come and corporately worship God, was here at this temple. In New Testament terminology, again, just as a comparison, God's temple is his church. God is indwelling each one of us. The church is God's people. In Matthew 18, we read, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So in Ezra, the people could come to the altar and the priest could offer a personal sacrifice for sin. There was also sacrifices for the entire community. This took place in a matter of months. It didn't take very long to get this established and going. But it took more than a year to build the foundation to the temple. And it took about 20 years for them to finish this temple. It was only accomplished with a lot of hard work, unity, and sacrifice. Notice, in verses 1 and 9 of Ezra 3, we see the Jews coming together, being unified to accomplish this monumental task. In verse 7, we see people sacrificing monetarily to build the temple. This is in addition to what was already given in Ezra 1.6 by people who stayed in Babylon and by the freewheel offering that was given in Ezra chapter 2. In Ezra 3, we also see people giving their gifts and their talents to build the temple. In verse 10, we see skilled, skilled musicians giving their time to lead the congregation in worship. Reading further through Ezra and into Nehemiah, there are countless examples of people working together and sacrificing for the sake of 
the temple, or if I can put it in today's vernacular, for the sake of God's kingdom rather than their own personal kingdom. So the Jews of Ezra's time could not build the temple by themselves. One person couldn't do it. The task was too large. The Christians of Faith Community Bible Church can't build God's kingdom alone. You can't do it in isolation. Pastor Tom can't do it in isolation. Josh can't do it in isolation. Richard McGargle can't do it in isolation. We have to do it unified together. In Hebrews 10, we read, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. In Hebrews, the progression is clear. There's a personal commitment, personal commitment to Christ, and that's followed by corporate encouragement and building up of one another. So as you consider this new year and possible new beginnings and resolutions, ask yourself, are those resolutions honoring to God? Do those resolutions build up this community that we're sitting in right now? Or are they only to please self? They only to make me feel better. Are we being accountable to others or are we living in isolation? Are we surrounding ourselves with godly friends who can ask us the hard questions regarding our motivations? Are we humble enough to accept questions from those that God has placed in our lives? When they might ask, are you doing that for the right reason? Are you being tempted by this? How are you living? Are you willing to accept those kind of questions without offense? Are you willing to stand unified with brothers and sisters to build God's church in a hostile world? Are you willing to be good stewards of the resources that God has given you and to give sacrificially to build his kingdom. I have one more example I want to share with you. A number of years ago, I went to BUDS. It's the training school for SEALs. And one of the, the famous uh, physical activities that the instructors like to do is called log PT. So this is a picture of a couple students um, in log PT, and you can see that there's five in this picture, but typically it was a boat crew of six to seven, at least in my class. And you would carry around this log for your physical training session, two to three hours. The logs are not super heavy, 180 to 210 pounds. That was always a trick of the boat crew leader was to try and get to the pile of logs first and pick out the one that looked the smallest and hopefully was the lightest um, that made you popular with your boat crew if you could do that. But then you would walk around with this log, carrying it above your head, carrying it on your shoulder, doing sit-ups. You would all sit in a row, and you would hold the log in your arms, and you would do sit-ups, and you would carry it down into the surf, and you would just walk around with this log for a couple hours doing whatever the instructors told you to do. And with a crew of 
five, six, seven guys, it's manageable. It's not that difficult. But the reason that this is included in this training isn't for the physical activity. Well, it's not only for the physical activity that this brings. It's to teach you to work together. Because as soon as one person stops carrying his share of the log, then the person in front and behind are carrying the log. And my experience was toward the end, people would start cheating. And you see the hands up here, but if you bring their hands down, they're not really carrying any load. In one particular day, I was on the front of the log. And on the front, there's no one in front of you, so it's very hard to cheat. And it becomes obvious to the instructors if you're not carrying any of your load. What's a little less obvious is if the person behind you isn't carrying any of your load, and now you're trying to carry for two. Or maybe a couple of people behind you are tired. And so the log goes from this position to this position, resting on top of your head. And so an instructor got into my face and he's yelling at me and cursing at me and telling me to get the log up and I'm struggling. I push the log up and pretty soon it's back on my head. And so the instructor's in my face yelling at me and then he's telling me to let go of the log and do push-ups. Well, that doesn't make my boat crew happy because now there's one less person carrying the log. So they're all trying to hold the log up and I'm trying to do push-ups and my arms are tired. So I'm not doing push-ups very well. Then he tells me, go down to the ocean and get a mouthful of water and run back. You better be quick and spit the water out. So I don't know if you ever tried to run with a mouthful of water. It's very difficult. So I ran down, I got a mouthful of seawater, came back and spit it out. And it was like three drops. And so he's still yelling at me. My whole point was my boat crew left me out to hang in the front and I couldn't hold it up by myself. That was my recollection. That's the story that I'm sticking with. All right. The point, how this relates is Pastor Tom is out in front. Are we going to leave Pastor Tom out there by himself holding up this log? Or are we going to come up around him, beside him, behind him, and help him hold this log up? So in your New Year's resolutions, are you going to help Pastor Tom carry the log? Or are you going to only carry the log for yourself? In conclusion, as we look forward to this new year, remember that new beginnings are always possible with God. God is ready to meet you wherever you're at. There's nothing that you can do, have done in the past, that the blood of Jesus Christ hasn't covered. Secondly, new beginnings must start with Christ. If you're not starting with Christ, then you're already way off the foundation. As we start with Christ, number three, we have to follow Christ in obedience. We have to be obedient to what we already know. Certainly, there's many things that we know is the will of God in our life. And finally, new beginnings, they need to build God's community, God's kingdom, and not our community, not our kingdom. Are you ready to start new with God as we start a new year? Did you make any New Year's resolutions? Do your resolutions build God's kingdom or do they only build your own kingdom? Are they only personal in nature? As we consider 20, as you consider 2024, do you need to make some changes in your life? How involved are you at Faith Community Bible Church? Are you involved in mentoring or being mentored? Do you have a gift or a skill that you could give to serve the community at Faith Community? 
Are you giving sacrificially of the resources that God has entrusted you? What could you do to improve your personal time with God? How could you encourage someone who's in need, someone who's down, someone who had a tough year? Are you struggling with addiction or other sin? And do you have someone that you can talk to, someone who can help you? I don't know the specifics of a lot of people's lives in here, but there's lots of other questions that I could ask that could be asked about where you're at. So as you reflect on your own life, please remember the example left to us in Ezra 3 and how we should be living. Thank you.